Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. A serialized non-fiction podcast that chronicles the story of 15-year-old Adrian Wilson's 147-day battle with primary liver cancer. As she lay dying, Adrian taught others, including her older sister Andrea, who raised her, how to live. Welcome back to Better Off Ball, the life of 147 days. I am your host and storyteller, Andrea Wilson-Woods. Whether you're watching the video or listening to the podcast, I really appreciate you tuning in. Let's get started. Days 111 through 117, Monday through Sunday, September 3rd through the 9th, 2001. Seven smiley faces. Seven, i.e. bowel movements. I feel as though there is no hope left in me for myself, and that's never good, especially now. I want to be in school. I'm not sure why, because I hate the place, but I want to be there. Adrian's email to a friend dated September 4th, 2001. When children lose their innocence, I am saddened because they don't get it back. Once it's gone, it's gone. I wonder if Adrian can remember a specific moment in her life that ended her childhood. Was it when mother's neighbor molested her in the community swimming pool? Or when our brother repeatedly shot her with his BB gun? What about when I moved away to go to college? Did that event cause her to grow up too fast? Even though she's 15 now, I want to protect her, make it all better. And the slow realization I can't is causing me to lose any faith I may have had. I remember this silly question someone asked me once about having superhero powers. Would you rather be able to fly or be invisible? I choose neither. Instead, I want to be a super healer. I want to make Adrian well, healthy, whole again, so she can go to school tomorrow, jam at rock concerts, dance at the prom. As I watch Adrian climb into the car, her pale skin glowing in contrast to the bright reds and greens of yet another fairy shirt, I think how she looks like a ghost wearing clothes. Having lost 20% of her body weight, she seems like an impression of her former self until she speaks. Then I know she's all there. On the way home from Anya and Alex's house, Adrian remains quiet. We attended their Labor Day barbecue, although I don't remember Adrian eating much. She seemed happy to see Nadia, but when they spoke about school starting, Adrian became silent. I don't know why I picked that moment to take a picture. A beaming Nadia and a bright tie-dyed shirt looked right at the camera while Adrian hugged a pillow to her chest and averted her eyes. I can only guess what she was thinking about not being able to go to school. She claims to hate that place, but I know she wants to be there. Homeschooling won't be the same. Another thing I can't fix. The following morning, I do my best to pretend everything is normal, but it's impossible to ignore the chatter of kids outside as they walk to school. Everyone is excited on the first day, even the delinquents. Adrian peers through the blinds and watches them for a few minutes. Silent tears 
slip down her cheeks. She sighs, turns on the TV, and slumps in her chair. Although most of her subjects have been determined, honors chemistry has been dropped in favor of honors physics, I cannot start homeschool with Adrian yet because I'm waiting on books from the district and the unofficial go-ahead. A more formal meeting will happen soon to determine Adrian's individual education plan, or IEP. With nothing to do, Adrian mopes around all day. Even reading The Fellowship of the Ring doesn't cheer her up, despite the fact she is looking forward to the film's debut in December. A few days later, we have a much-anticipated appointment at UCLA. The CAT scan results are in, and I know something is going to be different this time. I feel like I've been holding my breath and waiting to exhale. I feel tingly, as if my whole body just woke up from being numb and I need to jump around to ward off that needle sensation. I pace in the waiting area. I tap my foot when I sit down. I pick my cuticles until they bleed as Adrian and I sit in the exam room. Finally, Dr. Finn walks in. Well, I ask, there's been a change. For a half second, my heart soars like a young bird finding its wings, taking its first flight, racing through the air. Then I look into his eyes and my brain connects the words to the look on his face. My heart stops, forgetting to flap its wings and falls to the ground, landing with a loud thump. There's been a change. Those words were supposed to be good. I've waited so long for a change. I guess I wasn't specific enough in my wish. I wanted a positive change. Fewer tumors, smaller tumors, no tumors. There's been a change. It's, um, it's not good, I ask. Dr. Finn shakes his head. No, I'm sorry. They're worse. I know the they he is referring to are the tumors. I glance at Adrian, but I can't read her expression. She seems neither happy or sad. Then I realize she's not surprised. Dr. Finn goes on to tell us Adrian's AFP count has increased to 1.6 million, another blow. Forcing myself to sound more positive than I feel, I ask him if he has any good news. When I hear the words come out of my mouth, a sense of deja vu comes over me, and then I remember the last time I asked a doctor that question. The answer was no. We have the results from the test at Children's Hospital. The echocardiogram is normal. The bone scan still shows a lump on the back of the skull, but it hasn't grown. I nod. I should be relieved that Adrian's heart is functioning normally and the mysterious mass has remained the same size. But all I can think is how four rounds of chemotherapy did nothing but make Adrian miserable. I do believe the cytotoxic chemotherapy drugs are doing more harm than good, and it's time to switch to drugs that affect the cell's behavior, as you previously discussed with Dr. Aquino. I nod again. When I asked Dr. Fenn if he received my email yesterday regarding UFT, he admits he hasn't read it yet. I tell him about the studies on PubMed, but he refers me to Dr. Aquino, who has already decided to start Adrian on Zelota tomorrow. 
Dr. Finn mentions a colleague of Dr. Aquino's may contact me about a clinical trial, and I can ask him specific questions about UFT. After a handful of new prescriptions and an appointment tomorrow for a brain scan, we leave UCLA changed, but not the way I expected. Fuck you, change. When we get home, I discover the following email in my inbox. Email, subject, Emma Adrian Wilson and UFT, date September 6, 2001, from Dr. Marco. UFT is in the same family of 5FU and Zalota, therefore I am not surprised to find out that there is evidence of efficacy. Zalota and UFT are both derivatives of 5FU and both given in an oral form. I don't understand why one is legal and one is not, perhaps marketing and FDA regulations. I'm not sure about their differences, if any, maybe in marketing. Overall, 5-FU and its derivatives have not demonstrated in the past a tremendous response on HCC patients. Therefore, its major benefit is ease of administration since it is an oral medicine. Like many other agents, there are small series or case reports and we have to be cautious on how to interpret their results. That does not mean that one should not consider using these agents when appropriate. I appreciate that Dr. Marco replied to me, especially considering Adrian is no longer his patient, but I notice he doesn't sign the email. His response regarding UFT leaves me frustrated, encouraged, and enraged. I want him to be more hopeful about the PubMed studies I found, those few people who survived HCC. Yet I feel better about Adrian starting Zalota tomorrow. I know UFT is derived from the same drug, but hearing it again, or in this case reading it, gives me reassurance that a different type of chemo is necessary to continue this fight. However, I am livid. Marketing may be the reason UFT is not available in the U.S. In her email, Sophia wrote that foreign manufacturers find it too expensive to obtain FDA approval. I know drug companies want to make a profit, but at what cost? UFT has cured liver cancer, and yet it is unavailable in America, one of the richest countries in the world. The following day, UCLA faxes over copies of Adrian's lab and test results. I scan the papers looking for the words that match what I heard yesterday. Adrian's white blood cell count is normal. Her hemoglobin is 10.7, but UCLA has different ranges than Children's Hospital, so she is close enough to the low end of normal and does not need a blood transfusion. Her platelets have recovered as of yesterday, little risk of bleeding now. The chem panel shows Adrian's liver and kidney function are good. Even one of her liver enzymes is back within normal range. The brain scan results come a few days later. They read, the cerebellum and brain stem are normal in appearance. The bones are normal. Normal. What an inane word. I would have thought the medical field would use words like routine or standard to describe the ordinary. I know I should be grateful for how well Adrian is doing, especially considering how much she has endured. But when I read about the change Dr. Finn referred to, I feel hollow. Not only have the tumors in her liver grown, but her spleen is enlarged and gallbladder is decompressed and not visualized upon this examination. A CAT scan cannot see Adrian's gallbladder now due to the immense size of her liver and her spleen. I read more. 
multiple bilateral nodular metastatic lesions that are too numerous to count on the examination and a large subchirenal lymph node mass. Too numerous to count lymph node mass. Those sneaky bastards have spread into Adrian's lymph nodes. Why didn't Dr. Finn say anything? Because he knew I would read the report. Her lymph node tumors are nothing compared to the ones too numerous to count already in her lungs. There is nothing he can do or say to make it better. I read the last report, the results of a chest x-ray to check on Adrian's central line. The lung fields contain too numerous to count nodules and masses in every segment of every lobe. Every segment of every lobe. How many segments are there? What about lobes? I remember when Adrian called them dots of light and how they looked like snowflakes to me on the film. They seemed harmless. I don't understand how this happened. I grasp the actual progression of the disease, but what I don't know is why. Why Adrian? Email subject Emma Adrian Wilson and UFT date September 7th, 2001 from Dr. Aquino. There is probably not much difference in efficacy between these two drugs. They are both oral fluorouracil like drugs that target the same cell pathways through different mechanisms. Patients that are sensitive to one are likely to be sensitive to the other and the same goes for resistance. As to why UFT is not approved in the U.S., the right research has not been done in the U.S. Normally, studies done by American institutions are required for FDA approval. In general, I like to see Japanese results of cancer trials validated before accepting them, but it does seem that UFT has some activity, although marginal, in hepatocellular carcinoma. I read Dr. Aquino's email, and I wonder why he fails to mention the difference between Zalota and UFT the amino acid, uracil. I guess for him the point is moot because UFT is not an option for his patients. I appreciate his response though and like how he communicates by email. I hope Zalota can replicate the results of UFT, but without the amino acid, I don't see how it's possible to do so. We have no choice though. We have to try something new. Before starting Zalota tomorrow, we will begin with interferon which I will give as a shot in Adrian's arm on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at noon. A biologic response modifier, interferon should stimulate Adrian's immune system, but its side effects include flu-like symptoms such as fever, chills, fatigue, headache, nausea, decreased appetite, and bone and muscle aches. Since Adrian may still suffer from neuropathic pain, I tell her the shot's side effects resemble the flu, but I don't say what they are. We allow her body to inform us of its reaction to interferon. Despite administering a Nupagen shot to Adrian every day, giving her a new injection in another location fills me with dread. I'm afraid I'll mess it up. Wiping Adrian's arm with alcohol, she winces when I expose the needle, which is slightly larger than the one used for her other shots. Don't look, I tell her in my most commanding voice. On three. One, two, three. I insert the needle at the proper angle and I push the interferon, feeling it can't be. 
resistance. Ooh, it feels like syrup, says Adrian. Yuck. So I'm not imagining the difference in consistency between the two medications. All done. A few seconds and a band-aid later, we forget about the interferon for a while. I wait in anticipation to see how she handles the drug. If she can make it to dinner, she should be fine. The side effects should present themselves immediately, if at all. No such luck. Within three hours, Adrian says, I don't feel good, sissy. She complains her head hurts, her body aches, and she feels nauseated. Her chest also feels tight. I have no idea what that could be. Her temperature is 99.4 degrees and her heart rate is 110 beats per minute. I tell her to hold on. The flu-like symptoms can dissipate within hours. At 4 p.m., I give her 4 milligrams of Dilaudid for the joint pain. Her temperature increases to 100.1 degrees, but then decreases to 99.8 after a dose of Tylenol. We wait for John to come home. Adrian remains stable, but when her fever hits 101.4, the highest it has ever been, John and I agree to call UCLA. The doctor on call believes Adrian is having a negative reaction to the interferon, but he wants a blood culture to be sure there is no infection. Unlike children's, UCLA does not insist we drive across town to their emergency room. We go to our local hospital, St. Joe's, instead. John speeds through Burbank as if his Honda Accord is going to win a local drag race. I wonder if it occurs to him getting a ticket will slow us down. I watch Adrian sitting in the back seat, wrapped in a blanket, her body shaking. I've made a huge mistake. She has never been this sick before. I mean, before cancer. I suppose this is what the flu looks like, but Adrian and I don't get the flu. Sure, we catch colds like everybody else. We've had our share of food poisoning. Odd things happen to Adrian and me, like Graves' disease a ruptured appendix, hepatitis, liver cancer. Odd is not the word. We don't get the typical achy, feverish, nauseated, chilly flu that knocks most people out on their asses for two weeks. Is that why Adrian is having such an extreme reaction to the interferon? Great. The shot made her sicker. As we walk through the parking lot, Adrian vomits nonstop for almost a minute. I look at John in panic. I've never seen her like this before. He rushes into the ER to get towels. Feeling helpless, I rub her back as she retches even more. She wipes her mouth with one of the white towels John hands her. Even in the low light, I can see the yellow. Bile, says John, shaking his head. All bile. Yeah, Adrian nods her head. There's nothing left in there. She motions toward her tummy. John grabs a wheelchair and insists Adrian sit down as we enter the ER. I think the worst of it is over. Then Adrian says, Oh no. I yell, I need a bucket. No one acts quickly enough. Adrian leans over the wheelchair and a stream of pus-colored bile pours out of her mouth like someone popped a giant zit in her stomach. People look away and staff rushes to clean up the mess. Adrian says, I guess I was wrong. The three of us laugh. We are beyond the point where we can be embarrassed about this stuff. I want to say to the waiting room, so my child spews uncontrollable yellow waterfalls 
and is as hot and clammy as a summer day in the South. Why are you here? The word cancer grants us a bump to the front of the line, like Disney's Fast Pass. Dr. Lin, the man who said those fateful words, she has tumors in her liver and lungs, greets us. We haven't seen him since the initial diagnosis. Though he recognizes us, he maintains his distance. However, he gives Adrian something to curtail the vomiting and tells me to continue Tylenol at home until her fever subsides. He promises to send the blood culture to UCLA, though he agrees the symptoms are probably a strong reaction to the interferon, not an infection. Though he isn't overly friendly, Dr. Lin expedites Adrian's discharge as best he can, which I guess is his way of saying he cares. We spend less than 90 minutes at St. Joe's that evening. The following morning, Adrian has no fever, no chills, and no vomiting. All the effects of interferon seem to have disappeared in time for her first dose of Zolota, which will be given orally every 12 hours for 14 days straight, followed by a seven-day break. Known side effects of Zolota include diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, mouth sores, hand-foot syndrome, itchy, dry, red-peeling skin, mucositis, abdominal pain, heartburn, headaches, dizziness, and decreased blood counts. The most significant ones we are supposed to watch out for, although they won't happen right away, are the mouth sores and hand-foot syndrome because any open wounds leave Adrian susceptible to infection. For the moment, though, she doesn't seem to mind the possible risk. She has stopped puking and she is doing her chemo outpatient now, which allows her to begin homeschool tomorrow. I meet with her world history teacher in his home to pick up the materials, even though the school district has not approved Adrian's IEP. I buy math and French software at CompUSA to help Adrian with her studies. I am determined to give her as much of a normal school routine as possible. Normal. There's that word again. If we had a normal life, would Adrian have cancer? As I had predicted, even our closest friends stopped visiting Adrian, with the exception of Anya and Alex, who are our rocks. I am too tired to be angry and too busy to be disappointed. I'm not sure I would have done anything at all, but Adrian kept asking, where is so-and-so and why won't they come see me? So I email Adrian's posse, email, subject, Adrian, Date, September 8th, 2001, to our closest friends. Hey guys, I know you are very busy, but you are getting this email because Adrian has been wondering why she hasn't seen you lately. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, but some of you haven't seen her since the first time she was in the hospital, and that was almost four months ago. If you were not some of our closest friends, I wouldn't even bother to email you. But you are, and Adrian wants and needs to see you. Please understand, her visitors dropped off significantly after May. She's still sick, and she is still here. Now, I know you are still thinking about her, but please visit her soon. Her chemo is outpatient now, so there should be no hospital visits for a while. Thank you.
Thank you for watching and listening to Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. And I'll make you a deal. If you stay with me till the end of the story, I'll do my very best to suck back my tears. Please subscribe to my channel and stay tuned for the next episode. You just heard a chapter from Better Off Ball, A Life in 147 Days, a story told and written by Andrea Wilson Woods. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast, share it with your friends, and leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening.